In our last episode, at the outset of the U.S.-Israeli genocide in Gaza, we discussed the potential flashpoints for a larger regional war. This danger exists because of the fact that the U.S. government pumps the Israeli state full of weapons and ammunition in order to have an attack dog in the Middle East. But that dog is taking its owner for a ride, dragging him behind, clutching the leash as it mauls its way through town. Israel does not have the same interests as the U.S. government. They are happy to serve its role as a U.S. garrison in exchange for weapons and political cover, but ultimately, they want to achieve their project of an ethnostate, purged of its indigenous Arab inhabitants and conquering even more land it believes it's entitled to by God, which frequently complicates, if not outright contradicts, the interests of U.S. imperialism. But as the last decade, in particular the last three years, have seen a massive shift in consciousness worldwide, and especially in America, against Israeli colonialism, they may see October 7th and its aftermath as their last best chance to go for it all, to switch from their project of a slow genocide of Palestinians to an accelerated one. That really isn't possible without sparking a broader regional war against allies of the Palestinian resistance, which would have to involve the United States. Washington does not actually want that to happen, but they are definitely letting it happen, and on a few fronts, pushing it closer to happening. Our government is currently run by a foreign policy team who has nothing but foreign policy disasters under their belts. President Joe Biden, known for being the lead voice rallying the Democratic Party to support Bush's invasion of Iraq, which was pivotal in getting the country into the war. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, known for being a leader of the disastrous U.S. regime change operation in Libya as the main foreign policy advisor of Hillary Clinton. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, a lobbyist, known for trying hard to push Obama unsuccessfully, thank God, to apply the Libya model to Syria and to launch a major U.S. war there. Finally, a lesser-known bastard who is in charge of Biden's Mideast policy named Brett McGurk, who, among other failures, was part of the team that set up the U.S. occupation dictatorship in Iraq following the invasion, which intentionally stoked the fires of sectarianism. And of course, you got Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in there, whose previous job was as a board member of Raytheon. All of these guys have a track record of fucking up bad in the Middle East. They've all fumbled their way into disaster in the region more than once. And yet, they are the ones at the helm, while Israel, for its own narrow aims of achieving an ethnic cleansing, is trying hard to lead them down a path to a big, big war. The only thing we can count on is for these pigs to make the wrong decisions every step of the way. Whatever happens, they'll move on to other jobs or nice retirements while everyone else deals with the consequences. Since we last spoke, that war danger has increased quite a bit. The most recent development, which happened almost right after we recorded the interview you're about to hear, is a terrorist attack in Iran targeting the anniversary memorial for Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated by the United States four years ago. Between 1 and 200 people are believed to be killed. We don't know who is responsible yet. The likely culprits are ISIS the U.S.-backed terror group MEK, and the Israeli intelligence group Mossad. Or it could have been the Mossad facilitating attacks through ISIS or MEK as proxies, which is not out of character for Israel at all. The reason Israel is highly suspect here is because of the timing. In just days prior, Israel carried out two brazen assassinations, a Hamas official at his apartment in Beirut, Lebanon, and an Iranian general in Syria. But also just days before this attack, the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed by recent Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, calling for the United States to start a war with Iran as the only way to defeat Hamas. Why would Israel risk larger wars with Lebanon and Iran? Because it is losing in Gaza, unable to achieve its objectives, and one remedy would be getting the U.S. military powerhouse to join in directly, 
against all of the allies of Hamas. While Washington is seemingly reluctant to pour fuel on the fires in Lebanon and Iran, it is doing a good job of starting its own elsewhere in the region. In Iraq and Syria, the Pentagon continues to climb the escalation ladder, clashing with anti-ISIS militias allied with the Iraqi state and ignoring orders by the sovereign Iraqi government to close its bases and leave. Even more dangerous, the U.S. Navy has begun a military operation named Prosperity Guardian, which consists of killing Yemenis for holding up corporate shipping profits in solidarity with Palestine. It's notable that since Yemen began this policy weeks ago, they have killed exactly zero people and hurt only the flow of capital. But the Pentagon has decided it has the right to kill them. Despite 10 Yemeni soldiers being killed by American helicopters already, they have vowed to continue their anti-genocide shipping blockade, which means combat between the U.S. and Yemen will continue to break out. The only question is where will it lead? All that aside, the war on Gaza alone is enough to start a wider war, or at least significant blowback for the United States. The details of the Israeli ground invasion are almost too ghoulish to repeat. Um, I have to say, for me personally, beyond my own experiences, I've spent the last 20 years researching and hearing firsthand the worst horror stories from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Somehow, the biggest crimes of those entire 20 years, from Abu Ghraib to the Haditha massacre to the Afghan kill teams, have somehow been put to shame in just two months by Israeli ground forces. IDF troops shooting pregnant women as they walked into the hospital to give birth. Military bulldozers plowing through tents filled with wounded civilians, crushing them alive. Soldiers clearing out a hospital, entering a newborn ICU room containing several infants in incubators, and letting them starve to death while they barred doctors from returning to help them. There are too many to list, all while bragging on TikTok and Instagram about all the war crimes they are committing, celebrated by the Israeli population writ large, and codified into policy by the entirety of the Israeli state, which itself is quite vocal about its open intent to carry out a textbook genocide. With over 20,000 dead, 10,000 children, South Africa has brought a charge of genocide against Israel to the United Nations' highest court. So now that this has entered the stage of a very legitimate legal case, that puts quite a bit more pressure on everyone involved, including the big but mostly hidden role of the U.S. military. To discuss all these pressing developments, I'm joined by journalist Rania Khalid, host of Dispatches as well as The Freedom Side on Breakthrough News. She is based in Lebanon and has worked as an embedded journalist covering war zones in both Iraq and Syria. We'll be discussing all the current flashpoints for new U.S. wars in this episode of Eyes Left. A wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Iraq. I'm a hawk. I would have picked up arms myself to prevent 9 11 again. I left. As president, I wanted to give myself the Congressional Medal of Honor, but they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me do it. I said, I'm going to give myself the Congressional I've always wanted that. We just flew B-52, B-1 bombers in the South China Sea. We're not going to pay attention. Bye. Rania, thank you for joining me on Eyes Left. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Well, we have, unfortunately, a lot of different fronts to discuss and kind of big picture stuff as well. But I think it would be appropriate to start with Lebanon. You know, you are based in Beirut. And just as we were getting ready to start recording, Israel carried out a major escalation where they assassinated a senior Hamas leader, Saleh al-Aruri, in Beirut, which is an escalation that they had not taken in a very, very long time. And this, of course, has 
potentially explosive consequences for Israel and, of course, for the United States. We haven't seen the response yet from Lebanon and from Hezbollah, but I'm sure we may have that by the time this recording comes out. I think to preface that and your reaction to that, could you really quickly, you know, you were on the Empire Files recently with Abby, and you kind of explained how what is actually going on in the border between Israel and Lebanon? Because, and essentially you explained that Hezbollah is doing small strikes on the border against Israeli forces. It's kind of a tit for tat. You know, if Israel does something, they'll respond in the same way, slowly like climbing an escalation ladder. But the purposes from Hezbollah's point of view is, while not kind of directly intervening in the genocide in Gaza, by tying up Israeli forces on the border, making sure that they need to have a lot of forces there, it kind of ties up a a significant portion of their military that can't be sent to Gaza. And so while they're not directly fighting in the Gaza war, they're able to provide some relief for the people of Gaza by tying up a sector of the IDF there on the Lebanon border. So could you kind of give that picture, kind of the context of how this assassination happened? Yeah. And before I do go into some of that, I just want to note, I'm just seeing this. I think it's important. This is at least what the U.S. is saying. U.S. officials are telling some journalists who are like basically their mouthpieces. They're leaking that it was Israel that was behind the strike in Beirut that killed the Hamas official. But the Israelis didn't actually notify the U.S. in advance of the attack. A senior Israeli official confirmed Israel did not give the U.S. a heads up, but said Israel notified the Biden administration as the operation was happening. And I'm not surprised about that because this particular front in Lebanon has been one that the Americans have been trying to basically stop from escalating into a full-out war because an escalation between Israel and Lebanon would be something that could, in fact, force the U.S. to be drawn into this in a broader way than it already has been. And the U.S. wants to keep this genocide contained to Gaza specifically. Like, they're okay with Gaza being, you know, Anthony Blinken, Joe Biden. They're okay with Gaza being completely demolished and destroyed and, I guess, even ethnically cleansed. But they don't want it to escalate beyond that because then you could have a war ultimately escalating between the U.S. and Iran. So I think that's important to emphasize. But yeah, what you said is absolutely correct. The Since October 8th, Hezbollah has been engaging in this kind of low-level warfare with Israel. And the only reason I'm calling it low-level warfare is because it's not on the level of what we see taking place in Gaza, not even close. Gaza is like a totally different ballgame. But it's pretty severe what's been taking place. So about 10 kilometers into each border in northern Israel and in southern Lebanon, you've had some serious airstrikes, mostly like from the Israeli side, you've had a lot of airstrikes, really serious ones, particularly within the three kilometer zone of southern Lebanon. It's like kind of a no-go zone for people from people I know who are there or who are in the south. They say that if you leave your house right now, like an Israeli drone is right above your head following you everywhere you go. That's what Southern Lebanon is like right now. On the Israeli side, Hezbollah has been hitting mostly military targets. It's been hitting a lot Mm -hmm. of the logistical equipment that is used to observe and surveil what's happening at the border. And it's been putting out a lot of images of that. So there's been basically a tit for tat. And like you said, it's the whole purpose of this is for Hezbollah to relieve pressure on Hamas and Gaza. 
you know, Hezbollah is not a humanitarian organization, nor do they have the ability to stop what's happening in Gaza. However, they are diverting, they're forcing Israel to divert military resources to the north in a significant way, like a third to a fourth to sometimes half of their various resources are having to be used on the northern front, meaning that that's less than they are able to use on the Gaza front, whether we're talking about yeah, reservists or the Iron Dome, like the Iron Dome is having right. to be used to stop rockets from flying into the north, or whether you're talking about surveillance equipment or Navy boats, all of it. They can't basically go full force on Gaza, even though I know it looks like they are because they're, you know, there's a lot of destruction mm -hmm. because they're tied up in the north. That said, they also can't go full force in Lebanon because they're tied up in the south. So that's right. the purpose of what's taking place there. So it's been a tit for tat. And what's interesting here is, you know, Hezbollah is a really powerful organization. In 2006, there was a war between Hezbollah and Lebanon. And Hezbollah was a much weaker organization then. Israel was not able to properly invade Lebanon because Hezbollah was so powerful. And Hezbollah did do a lot of damage to Israel by firing like these Katusha rockets. Today, we're talking about almost two decades later, Hezbollah is much larger. I think it has over like 100,000 fighters. It has experience on battlefields in face-to-face -face combat and actually traditional warfare, you could say in a way, because they were fighting alongside conventional military forces like the Russians in Syria. And they have bigger weapons. They've been able to collect not just unguided Katusha rockets, which they still have a stockpile of those, but they have precision-guided missiles at this point, which is what Israel's really scared of, and long-range uh, missiles and all kinds of weapons that they haven't even shown they're able to use yet. And that's the only reason that Israel has not done to Lebanon what it's done to Gaza. Hezbollah is this form of deterrence that protects the country from what Israel used to do to Lebanon, which is just bomb it relentlessly, invade and steal land. So that's what's happening on the Lebanon front. Now, today, the rules of engagement have mostly, except for a few moments here and there, stayed within this kind of like five to 10, sometimes 15 kilometers, a couple times 20 to kilometers zone where, you know, there's this tit for tat, right? I mean, Israel has killed way more people than Hezbollah has, of course, and has enacted more destruction. But Hezbollah has also been able to do a lot of damage in northern Israel. So because of that level of deterrence from Hezbollah, Israel stayed inside the rules of engagement that for, to a large extent, I would say, Hezbollah has determined up until now. And Hezbollah's red lines up until now in terms of not having this escalate into a bigger war have been... One, you know, if Hamas is actually threatened with eradication in Gaza, that's one major red line that would force Hezbollah to get more involved. Another red line was if Israel bombs Dahi. Now, Dahi is in the southern part of Beirut. It's considered a southern suburb of Beirut. In the media, you'll often see it in the mainstream Western media. You'll see it referred to as a Hezbollah stronghold, which is just mm -hmm. a way to dehumanize everybody who lives there. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a place that where a lot of Shias live, a lot of Shias who support Hezbollah live. So during the last war on Lebanon in 2006, Israel completely demolished, like carpet bombed this area of Beirut. And that's actually where the Dahi doctrine was born, which is the idea of this doctrine is to basically like destroy all the infrastructure, the apartment buildings, anything that's civilian. You just destroy it. The electricity building, whatever, generators, water storage facilities, you destroy everything as a form of deterrence so that the base of support of the organization, in this case Hezbollah, that you're trying to destroy, will turn against them. And that's actually what we saw then enacted in Gaza in 2008-2009, this Dahi doctrine. We saw it again take place in 2014 
to a lesser extent in 2021 for that two or three week war that that, that, that took place then. And now we're seeing it on a broad scale, like used against all of Gaza. So that's where that's where you'll hear the Dahia doctrine. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where it comes from. So they, they destroyed this area of Beirut. It was then rebuilt later on. But the red line, this was the second red line for Hezbollah. You bomb Dahi, then that's a red line and that could trigger a full scale war. So today the Israelis bombed this area of Beirut Well, with a drone strike. They killed a few Hezbollah officials, including one in particular called Saleh al-Aruri, who was actually, I believe, one of the co-founders of Qassam Brigades and spent time in Israeli prisons. You'll often see that when it comes to the Hamas leadership of the military wings. Oh, yeah, like over 15 years in Israeli prisons. Exactly. All that's to say this was a violation of the current rules of engagement. So now everybody's waiting to see how Hezbollah is going to respond. I mean, they have to respond. And this is also, by the way, a huge escalation. In terms of just one country carrying out an assassination inside another sovereign country, that's a pretty big deal what Israel did. I mean, the only other countries who really do things like that are the U.S., right? Yeah, really quickly, like, I think a lot of the media description of this is like, you know what you mentioned, the the Hezbollah stronghold and like Hamas-based area of Beirut or whatever. They use that to like, distract from the the fact that they bombed Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. Beirut yes. is the biggest city in Lebanon. It's a it's a major developed hub of Lebanese culture and society. And that's what they they bombed the capital city of another country. Yes. You know what I mean? And so like that's the comparison. It's like, you know And they hit a residential so, building, by the way. Like they hit right, they right. they hit they targeted this guy's apartment. Um that's right. a big deal. It's a huge escalation. I mean look mm-hmm. if Hezbollah was gonna respond in, in like in a equivalent way, it would mean them targeting, like assassinating an Israeli general in his inside condo, Tel Aviv. You know, That's what that would be. Yeah, right. I, are they going to do that? I don't know. I, no one knows how mm-hmm. Hezbollah will respond. But like, I will say this so far up until now, Hezbollah has handled this war with Israel masterfully in many ways in terms of like responding very appropriately to Israel's provocations in a way that asserts Hezbollah's deterrent capacity, and it's like an appropriate response, while also avoiding a full-scale war. That that is how they've managed to respond so far, in a very strategic way, where they're saying, hey, we're capable of hitting back, and you should be afraid of us, but also not going to the extent of triggering a full-scale war with Israel. That said, Israel is a very irrational actor. They've repeatedly proven that throughout this genocide in Gaza. Irrational in the sense that, like, they don't seem to care about the impact, the consequences so much on their own people. You can see that in Gaza. Like, they don't mm-hmm. care about their own hostages. They bombed their own people on October 7th to prevent them from being taken hostage. So the Israelis don't act in a rational way that, like, any, I guess, any of us would think about when we think about how warfare is done. So mm-hmm. that being said, you know, it's a very difficult place to be in when you're an organization like Hezbollah because you have to maintain this balance because Hezbollah does not want a full-scale war with Israel. And there are Israelis who are like, you know, salivating for a war with Lebanon. They want to go in and do to Lebanon what they're doing to Gaza. I mean, every day they threaten that. So it's a scary situation. We're all kind of just like waiting to see what happens. Maybe by the time this episode goes up, there'll have been a response. Mm -hmm. I suspect it will probably be a very smart response that, like I said, maintains that balance of like responding without triggering a bigger war. But that said, this is another notch in the escalation ladder regardless. Mm -hmm. So we are getting closer to that place where 
escalation, 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 even if it doesn't trigger a full out war, we're getting closer to the point where it will. And like I mentioned, when I was on Abby's show, like the longer this war in Gaza, this genocide in Gaza goes on, the more likely a bigger regional war becomes. Because once you're moving up the escalation ladder, even if people Mm -hmm. don't want war, you have no choice. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that the White House response has been like, yo, we got nothing to do with this. We didn't know about this. Basically, because they're like, we don't want this and we don't want this to escalate. And almost trying to pretend like they're not involved in any way. And so if there is any escalation, the U.S. isn't involved and people shouldn't worry about us being involved. But clearly the U.S. is involved. Oh, yeah. If there was a breakout of a bigger war between Israel and Lebanon, the U.S. would absolutely have a role in that. I mean, right now there's already about 100 or so U.S. special forces that are in Lebanon that were operating secretly until, I don't know if Biden accidentally let it slip in 2023, but he confirmed it. The mission there is called Lion Hunter. Uh, cool name. Uh, <laughs> which is weird because like it's an anti-ISIS mission. So like you're calling ISIS they like call lions. I thought it was like a good... mission. Yeah, anyway, I yeah. thought like uh, calling a fighter a lion, I thought was like a compliment. So to call it Lion Hunter <laughs> also, is a it's, it's, it's so ironic. Real quick before you finish, that's just ironic because the U.S. actually has a history in recent history in Lebanon of backing like radical psycho ISIS-like groups. But anyways, continue. Perfect, yeah. So there's, yeah, so there's already U.S. special forces on the ground. They're operating, uh, leading, anytime there's special forces, it means they're commanding larger numbers of foreign fighters or local fighters, and possibly in in Lebanon's case. So there's like these proxy forces that are under the command of U.S. forces. So there's already U.S. forces there, uh, which could make an impact. But, you know, so that the U.S. wants to wash its hands of this, but, you know, is is directly involved. And I wonder, you know, I wonder how much this has to do with the fact that, you know, you mentioned how Israel acts just recklessly. And a lot of times for just they don't have this like the Israelis that are calling for like a bigger war with Lebanon. It's like you'd think they'd have the self-awareness now after what's going on in Gaza that like you're doing pretty poorly on the ground in Gaza, yet you're threatening, you're like salivating over the idea of going to war with Lebanon, like as if you're not, how do you not have the self-awareness that that probably would not go well? Maybe because they're confident the U.S. will will come in and save their ass or something. (laughs) But I wonder if this, I wonder if the assassination has anything to do with the fact that one of the biggest new developments in the Gaza war is that the Israeli military is essentially retreating Mm -hmm. from North Gaza. I mean, they have been uh, dealt such major blows in Northern Gaza that they're essentially pulling out and switching to what they call a a low-intensity war in the north of the Gaza Strip. Yeah. Supposedly, the White House played a role in this by putting pressure on the Israeli government to say, hey, you need to reduce the number of civilian casualties, not because they don't support them killing civilians, but because it's it's hurting Biden so badly. And so the people that are in the White House right now are like, we're going to be out of office uh, in a year if we don't find some ways to turn around what's happening. Mm-hmm. And of course, Gaza is a major part of that. And so just out of their own like professional self-interest, which is just so depraved, they're telling Israel like, can you, it's, it's harder for us to have like 700 people a day dying. Can you lower that? Cut your operations in one part of Gaza so it's like 300 civilians a day that you're killing instead of 700. Yeah. So I don't know if that's actually the reason It's probably, so the White House has been pressuring Israel to kind of scale some things down. Israel probably wants to scale things down in North Gaza because it's going very badly for them. It's becoming a political scandal and stuff within Israel. But I wonder if that's some of the context here. Israel's getting their ass kicked in Gaza. They have to announce this big retreat. 
And then, you know what? Guess what? We're going to distract by actually just killing a Hamas person in an apartment building in Lebanon's capital city. And everyone should focus on that instead. Yeah, no, I think it's all the things you just mentioned. You know, I, I, when this first started, Israel, you, if you were reading Israeli media, you'd see every week or so, you'd have an Israeli official recognizing quite publicly that there is a time limit for how long they will mm -hmm. have before the world is like, nope. And before, most importantly, the U.S. is like, all right, guys, time to stop. They recognize yeah. that pretty early on. I think the Israelis were actually pleasantly surprised with just how much time the Biden administration has been willing to give them before they've, and until now, the Biden administration has used zero leverage other than some public rhetorical demonstrations of like disagreement with the Israelis. They've used no actual leverage to pull the Israelis back. So, but they're still dealing with the idea of the international communities breathing down their necks, right? You've got the South Africa's now invoked the genocide convention at the International Court of Justice, which the Israelis, by the way, are actually concerned about. Surprisingly, yeah. I was kind of surprised by that. But you've got, you know, people in the Biden administration are traveling to Israel all the time, telling them, OK, it's time to wind it down. They've definitely given Israel some red lines. One of those red lines is we don't want to see a war with Hezbollah. We don't want this to escalate further regionally because once it escalates regionally, it affects American forces, right? I mean, Americans aren't mm -hmm. sitting in Gaza unless they're Israeli settlers who invaded who happen to also be Israelis, but like you mentioned, they are in Lebanon. They are in Iraq, which I know we're going to talk about. They are in other parts of the Gulf where the different resistance factions are able to target them if this were to escalate into a bigger war. And then there's the Iran factor. So the Americans kind of have some red lines they've sort of imposed on the Israelis. The Israelis get that. And then there's the military on the ground factor. Whether The thing is, though, that Israel's stuck. That's the issue here. Israel set these strategic mm -hmm. objectives when this started that they can't meet, which they've proven they can't right. meet. They are far superior military technologically, but they suck at fighting on the ground, which is why Hamas has been able to kill Israeli soldiers quite regularly and why they haven't actually been able to take control of anything in Gaza. Like they take these photo ops. You see these you'll see like online, you'll see some photo op they took in some place they blew up. And then you'll find out two weeks later that that brigade actually was killed by Hamas a couple mm -hmm. weeks after that, because they don't actually control anything. You can destroy entire apartment blocks and streets. You can destroy everything. That doesn't mean you control the territory, especially when you have a tunnel system underground, which they don't know how to deal with. So on top of that, on top of the fact that they're stuck when it comes to Gaza, because literally anything except for what the military objective they set, which was the defeat of Hamas, anything less than that will be seen as a victory for Hamas. And they know that. Yeah. So they're stuck in Gaza. And then on the northern front, like this is the first time in history this has ever happened. I think you have like 200,000 Israelis between the north and the south have evacuated the areas, all of the villages and towns that border both Gaza and border Lebanon. So these people don't want to go back to the north until they feel safe. And now they don't feel safe as long as Hezbollah is operating on the border. That's where Hezbollah lives. So Israel's also stuck in the north. How are they going to get their settlers to go back? They're stuck in the South. How are they going to get their settlers to go back? They're in a very existential crisis right now as a settler colonial country. And so I think you're going to start to see more tension, more disagreement between the Americans and the Israelis, because the Israelis at this point have different objectives than the Americans do. The Americans want this to wind down. They don't want broader regional war. They want to go do their great power competition against China and Russia. The Israelis are like, no, we need to reassert our deterrence so that our population can go back to their their settlements. 
these are two contradictions that I think we're going to see play out even more in the coming days and weeks, especially if you have the Americans essentially trying to say we had nothing to do with this assassination in Beirut. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's Biden's approach to this whole thing has been just really stunning because, you know, you have you have the Bush administration invade Iraq and it's like the biggest foreign policy disaster for the United States since the Vietnam War. You know, the U.S. is like clearly defeated in Iraq, you know, and then you have Obama come in to say, you know what, we're going to get out of Iraq, like the dumb war in Iraq, and we're going to focus on the smart war in Afghanistan. And then they proceed to lose the war in Afghanistan. You have Trump in the middle there, uh, but then you have Biden come back in and say, yeah, you know, we're actually going to leave Afghanistan now because that's actually also the dumb war. And we need to focus on on Asia and China and, and and Russia and all of that stuff. And then still somehow is getting sucked back into this potentially explosive quagmire situation uh, in the Middle East. And it seems like it is kind of in contradiction with U.S. interests, right? With U.S. overall strategic interests, like geopolitics and like how they want to dominate the region. Because, you know, the whole reason Obama came in in the first place is because all of the damage that was done by Bush and how the status of the United States was diminished in the in the Arab and the Muslim world. It was just an, it was an embarrassment and, and all of these things. And so Obama had to come in and like repair the image of the empire, which then showed to be that you could be defeated in a country like Afghanistan over 20 years where you try everything to win and then you just fail. And so it seemed like what was in the interest of the U.S. was to, you know, move on from all that and get ready, you know, just dump a bunch of money into defense contractors to build up a bunch of shit around China. Well, I was going to say also Israel is supposed to Israel, like America's proxies in the region, like Israel, Saudi Arabia, they're supposed to police it for the U.S. So it's right. also like Israel's kind of failed at its job. And right. the U.S. is like, God, damn, like not to say the U.S. I mean, the U.S. does have similar interests to Israel in the sense of like maintaining Israel's military superiority over all its neighbors so it can police them and it can like be a counter to Iran and blah, 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 blah. But like October 7th was a huge failure in this respect. So that's why, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. also got pulled in because pulled back in because the situation is not sustainable. This this situation where Israel gets to exist just occupying people forever isn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. And it really has been the root cause. Like you could say since Israel's founding, it's just been like a root cause of so many problems in the region but it's like it's a big contradiction because while the U.S. needs it to be rectified so we can like move on to China, it also needs Israel. Like when when Biden, that video, mm-hmm. that that viral clip of Biden being like, oh, you know, if, if Israel didn't have to exist, we, you know, we'd have to create her or whatever. I can't remember the exact right. phrasing. I mean, he means that. And it's true. Israel is like a vassal state of the U.S., of the U.S. empire. Um, it's just doing a very poor job at it. Much like the U.S. Yeah, on like I mean, a smaller scale. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the weird thing. It's like the whole, the whole reason for the U.S. supporting Israel in the way it does is because it serves that it serves an interest for them as like a garrison where the Israel can act where the U.S. doesn't have to. But in this situation, it's completely not serving its role and blowing up in the face of the United States. Yet they still continue to be completely uncritical. And I think the one of the big potentialities here is like the last time the U.S. military played a big role in Lebanon it was doing something extremely evil, mm-hmm. which uh, I'd like you to maybe mention a little bit about. And it didn't end well for the no. United States. It ended with 241 U.S. service members, mostly U.S. Marines, being killed in a major uh, bombings in 1983. To which it was so 
it was such a successful attack that the U.S., even though Reagan was in office, like basically didn't retaliate. I mean, they did some retaliatory strikes, but there was no big escalation from the U.S. It was kind of like, oof, you got us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, obviously things are different now, but when there's a recent history, I mean, that's, I was born in 1983. That's in my lifetime mm-hmm. uh, that this happened. For a lot of people in Lebanon, that's in their lifetime, where you have both the U.S. doing extremely heinous, like terrorist types activities, but then also that blowback being felt very real and that which still impacts the military and veterans community. I mean, every year in North Carolina, there's a huge memorial service and gathering of all the people that were in that Beirut bombing and the families and survivors. You know, it that that bombing did really impact the military families and veterans community because it was it was a huge, I mean, there's it's not often that many American get soldiers get killed at one time, which was a consequence of Washington doing a bunch of dumb shit in Lebanon and not caring what happens uh, on the other side. And that's what the outcome was. Today, of course, it's different, but there's a similar type of similar type of thing. Now we have the U.S. You have U.S. military forces in Lebanon and you have the U.S. supporting Israeli-led genocide. I mean, is, could that lead to some blowback? Fucking probably. Mm-hmm. And who's going to be the, the receiver of that blowback? Well, the easiest people to punish right now for that are American soldiers who are stationed in all of these places. Totally. And yeah, what you were talking about in Beirut in 1983, I mean, every single year, like it was such a big deal that that many American soldiers were killed that every single year you have speeches on, you know, the anniversary of it, like it happened yesterday. And that bombing, I mean, the you know, Reagan sent Marines into Lebanon. He was warned not to. He sent them there to go help these right-wing fascist militias that they, that were basically proxies of the U.S. That the U.S. had been supporting in Lebanon throughout the, you know, it's called a civil war, but it was more like an international war against Lebanon that killed so many people and have had different sort of seg- parts of it. A year before the U.S. had gone there, the Israelis had invaded, which, by the way, sparked the creation of Hezbollah. The Israelis invaded and occupied Lebanon for a very long time. They put Beirut under siege. They killed when they invaded Lebanon and they made it all the way up to my family's village. They invaded and um, they killed like 20,000 people. I mean, some people say like what they're doing in Gaza now is reminiscent of what they did to Beirut, though I think maybe Gaza is a bit more widespread. But that said, the Americans sent Marines to basically go help fascist militias. (laughs) I appreciate all your analysis on Lebanon and, you know, the potentiality for it to become you know, a tinderbox for the United States, especially. And, you know, I think just really quickly before we wrap up that point is, you know, not to get in too much into like Hezbollah themselves, but like, you know, if Amer- if American soldiers find themselves in a position where, you know, I think there's some similarity to Iraq right now where like, yeah, there's U.S. soldiers that are in Lebanon to fight like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, like the real bad guys, right? That's the reason that they're in Iraq and Syria too. But right now they're not fighting ISIS, they're fighting forces that are aligned with the Iraqi government and they're they're like fighting people that they're not supposed to be fighting only in service of the Israeli genocide. And mm-hmm. so there's that potentiality in Lebanon, but for and of course much more American service members who aren't on the ground in Lebanon are doing like support type operations for that mission. And so if that mission becomes that they have to somehow have Israel's back, uh whether it's logistically or directly on the ground with whatever escalation is coming with Lebanon, like you're a leftist. What's your opinion of Hezbollah? Like, there are are they people that we have any business fighting? Hezbollah's entire reason for existing in Lebanon is to fight 
Israel's invasion and occupation of their land. Like Hezbollah right. came to be after Israel invaded and occupied Lebanon. They fought died to kick them out. These are people from Lebanon. Like they are just people from the villages where they exist to fight the Israelis and protect the territorial integrity of Lebanon. And actually Hezbollah played a huge role in fighting ISIS and Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. They entered the war in Syria in 2013 officially because Lebanon was threatened by the collection of Al Qaeda and ISIS and affiliated jihadist groups that were in Syria, that the U.S. was backing, by the way, in Syria. Like, we can't forget that ISIS across the region grew and took over areas because of the vacuum created by U.S. regime change schemes across Mm -hmm. Syria. ISIS never could have gotten as big as it didn't existed. You could even go back to the Iraq war. ISIS was was what came out of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which didn't exist until after Mm -hmm. the U.S. invaded Iraq. So it's just the irony of having these American forces in all of these countries to supposedly fight al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, The irony of all that is that these groups would not exist in this region if not for U.S. policy that actually these guys in D.C. were aware. Like you can go back Mm -hmm. and look at WikiLeaks cable of Jake Sullivan, who is a primary figure in the current advising of Joe Biden in the current genocide in Gaza. Jake Sullivan, you can go find emails between him and Hillary Clinton where he was basically saying al-Qaeda and Syria is on the same side that we are. Like, very openly, very yeah. bluntly. Yeah. They knew exactly yeah. what they were doing. Yep. But the point is, is Hezbollah, after uh, the rise of, like, al-Qaeda and ISIS across Syria, and then ultimately they were invading, like, eastern Lebanon from Syria, that's when Hezbollah got involved, when this these organizations became a threat to Lebanon. But the point is, is Hezbollah is a Lebanese organization that has historically existed literally as a reaction to invasion and occupation and war on Lebanon. They exist to protect Lebanon. And you asked me as a non-Muslim, how do I feel about a Shia Islamist organization like Hezbollah? They protected Druze villages and Christian villages, you know, as well as Sunni villages during all of that time, uh, not just, for, you know, from not just from Israel, by the way, but also from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Like, had it not been for Hezbollah, Lebanon would have had areas taken over by these groups where they kill minorities. Hezbollah does not kill minorities. They actually protect minorities in these kinds of circumstances. So as a Lebanese person who's a non-Muslim person, I know, you know, I can only say so much because obviously this is like a group that's considered a very bad one by the American government. But Mm. I can say this, family members of mine would be dead and parts of where I'm from wouldn't exist or would be taken over or stolen by religious fanatics, whether we're talking about Israelis or Al-Qaeda and ISIS, if not for Hezbollah. So you can take that as you want. But for many people... Not everybody, I'm not claiming to speak for all Lebanese here, but for many people, this is a resistance group that protects from destructive forces that happen to often be aligned with the United States. You know, I just got to say that Hezbollah striking Israeli military targets on the border and tying up a a huge portion of its military, that's an objectively good thing. I mean, Israel trying to conduct an ethnic cleansing of Gaza, mass murdering civilians, not just from the air, but the stuff that they've been doing on the ground is like even more heinous than the airstrikes. It's an anti-genocide action. Striking Israeli forces so that they have to divert large forces so they can't be committing a genocide in Gaza. That's objectively good. 
And any kind of operation or military action from the U.S., whether it be a a support role or direct or whatever, to hinder Hezbollah's ability to do that is enabling more civilians to be wiped out in a genocidal campaign. Totally. So let's move on to the next, I think, for the United States, a potentially bigger tinderbox, and that is Yemen. Yemen, like like Hezbollah, is saying, you know, we're not going to take no action when there's a genocide happening, Mm -hmm. which most countries should be doing, but there's just a small number of, of countries, and not even countries, but a small number of organizations within certain countries that are saying, we got to do something to stop this, something meaningful or something that can create some more pressure to stop this. So Yemen, because they are positioned on the Red Sea, where a massive amount of capital flows through, they have said, we will not allow the flow of capital that supports the genocide. So Israeli ships, ships bound for Israel, you're not allowed past the area that, that we run security operations because that is money, number one, that is money that is going to go in some way, benefit the genocide. And of course, it's creating a massive amount of pressure for other countries that are going to suffer some profit losses to say, hey, can you stop doing the genocide? So it's a, it's a, strategically, it's a very important and like justifiable move to say, you're going to lose, you're going to lose some few billion dollars if you, if you decide to keep carrying out this genocide. And it's also smart because these big capitalist countries that are just like, even ones that are conde- you know, saying, calling for a ceasefire and stuff, what's going to actually move them to do anything? It's when the banks and big corporations in their countries are like, hey, we're, we're losing a lot of money. You got you to step it up a little bit. So once, once Yemen started conducting these operations, you know, they seized a, a big vessel and that was a big deal. And they flew Palestinian flags on it. I mean, it's very obvious like why they're, why they're doing it. As long as the genocide is happening, these ships aren't allowed here. So, of course, the disruption of the flow of capital, you know, for the United States is like the worst offense anyone <laughs> could ever commit. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, the, and, and all of a sudden they start evoking international law. You have the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, also a Raytheon board member and shareholder, uh, so a direct war profiteer. Actually, he was my division commander when I was no. inside. I used to go, I ran with him a couple times and he was wow. a one-star general. But, you know, he went and uh, put a suit on and started making some money at Raytheon. But um, so, of course, he gets up there and is talking about this is illegal, what Yemen is doing. Of course, never use the word illegal for all of the stuff they're enabling Israel to do in Gaza. But they launched this operation on December 19th called Operation Prosperity Guardian, which is another way of saying Operation Profit Guardian. And it's funny because they initially announced that it was this big, huge coalition, that all of these, the (laughs) world is coming together for this important coalition to ensure the flow of capital through the Red Sea. And they initially announced it, the, the initiators, it was like the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Spain, other big U.S. partners didn't join, like Australia and Japan. Bahrain was the only Arab country to join. Like, even Saudi Arabia didn't join, and they had just been in a big war against the Houthis in Yemen. But then after that initial list was announced, France then came out and said, actually, we're not really part of this. Like, we're going to do our normal stuff in the Red Sea, but we're not going to fall under the U.S. umbrella. Italy came out and basically said, like, we're, not, we're actually not part of this. Uh, then Spain came out and said, we're kind of part of this, but only under NATO's leadership. Like, we're not going to do anything that's under U.S. command. Like, if there's some NATO-led stuff, we'll be a part of that. 
So that whole big coalition, like coalition of the willing, like Iraq war type stuff they're trying to create, it kind of all fell flat. Right. And I guess showed the consequences of the U.S. supporting this genocide for their overall like big world hegemon interests. But it didn't mean that the Operation Profit Guardian wasn't going forward. And so we saw on December 31st that policy, that new Pentagon plan in action, where a distress call came from a ship that was headed for Israel. There were five Yemeni speedboats that were trying to intercept the ship, saying, you can't can't come here. You know you can't come here. We told you you can't come here. So they radioed to the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy sends ships and helicopters. Those helicopters come and destroy four of the five boats, killing their crews. Mm. The Yemeni Armed Forces spokesperson responded by saying, quote, while carrying out regular official duties to establish security, stability, and protect maritime navigation, American forces attacked Yemeni naval boats. The U.S. bears the consequences and repercussions of this crime. Yeah. So, of course, the we know that Yemeni forces have fired on some U.S. ships in the, in the past, and you know, the U.S. has had to intercept those rockets and stuff. This could mean that there's a big uptick in that, especially with more U.S. targets in the region. But also, the other side of this is not just what's going to play out in the Red Sea, which could be potentially huge, is that the Pentagon has drawn up plans to start bombing Yemen directly for the U.S. to start striking Yemeni military targets on their own soil. A source told the Times of Israel that the United Kingdom has said that they will join that bombing campaign with the United States. The New York Times reported that so far, Biden is reluctant to carry out what the Pentagon wants to do in Yemen because, not for any good reason, but because it could like inadvertently benefit Iran or something. So, <laughs> uh, so there's so Biden so far is not doing it, even though it's on the table. But at a minimum, even if the U.S. doesn't start bombing in Yemen, which would be horrific, especially considering what Yemen has just been through uh-huh. over the past several years, which the United States enabled, which we should talk about a, a little bit. But at minimum, what is happening is that U.S. naval forces, potentially others too, like Marines are, are on these ships. We probably have like Air Force pilots that are involved in it as well. There's a big U.S.-led military operation that is killing Yemenis, killing Yemenis that are doing really a good thing. Mm-hmm. And they are going to engage in this operation to kill Yemenis in order to ensure the flow of capital to a genocide. Yeah. You know, I think it's really incredible that the poorest country in the region is Mm. doing more than the richest countries in the region, is doing the most, actually, to materially try to shut down this genocide. Um, And yeah, I think the way you framed it is really important to emphasize again. You have the U.S., using the lives of its own soldiers to basically kill Yemenis and potentially get killed back themselves to protect the profits of various shipping companies sending stuff to Israel. That's it. So that a genocide can continue. All of this, everything happening right now, everything the U.S. is doing is just like, is sacrificing the people who are forced to fight their stupid wars so a genocide can continue so that a bunch of guys in suits in Washington can get reelected and keep their jobs and continue making money. That's what's happening. And it's really disgusting. Whereas on the Yemeni side of things, you have this, I think Yemen is the poorest country in the region, literally. Yeah. And it just came out of 
like a horrific war that was led by the Saudis, but was backed by the U.S. and the British and France. That went on for years after 2011 when the Houthis, who are now in charge of Yemen, deposed the U.S. Saudi-backed Yemeni leader Ali Abdullah Saleh. And then, you know, just to give a little background, I mean, the Houthis, because a lot of times in the U.S. media, you won't see them refer to the government of Yemen. You'll see them Mm. refer to the Houthis, the Iranian-backed Houthis. The Houthis are an organic Yemeni movement made up of Yemenis, (laughs) right? Like, they're not Iran, but the U.S. and the, you know, Sunni rulers of Saudi Arabia ended up causing this civil war. But as we know, a lot of civil wars in a lot of third world countries and a lot of the global south are actually like proxy wars that we just call civil wars. But basically it had one side backed by the Saudis. And Yemen, if you look at a map, Yemen borders Saudi Arabia. It's very, very important to Saudi interests to control whoever's in charge of Yemen. So when they have any actor that isn't a puppet of Saudi Arabia, they get very scared. And that's just historically the way it's been with like Saudi Arabia versus Yemen. But the point is, is there was this war that took place for a very long time. The Saudis, with the backing of the United States, the British and the French, imposed this starvation siege on the portion of Yemen that the Houthis controlled. So many children starved to death. So many people died. Cholera outbreaks killed people. Like it was horrific, horrific. And ultimately, Saudi Arabia couldn't win. This is actually a situation we see replicated all over the world. Saudi Arabia could not defeat the Houthis who were so poor and basically fought in sandals and made all their own rockets and drones. They manufactured their own drones. Yeah, you know, I actually saw a photo of some fighters in Yemen and like one guy had a rifle from World War One. Yeah, that, that that's crazy. Like I was like, I was like, okay, yeah. Right. And Saudi Arabia has all the highest tech equipment. It has the fighter jets that they buy from the Americans, probably mm-hmm. from companies like Boeing and, you know, weapons from Raytheon. So Lloyd Austin's making bank, you know, um, all, you know, and it's just like killing Yemenis for all these years. But Saudi Arabia couldn't win. And we've seen this play out in so many places. It's like the way the U.S. couldn't defeat the Taliban, not to compare yeah. the Houthis to the Taliban. Just saying like a movement with far less superior military equipment just by existing and continuing to exist and not being completely defeated is able to ultimately win. Eventually, the Saudis were like, the Saudis basically gave up. Mohammed bin Salman wants an economically prosperous future for his country. He can't have that if he's fighting proxy wars for America. So eventually, they came up with like a temporary peace deal, which turned into a long-term peace deal. And then it actually like became more permanent once China brokered the peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia because Iran is allied with Yemen or with the Houthis. It's not a proxy. They're just allies. In fact, again, the Houthis manufacture their own weapons. Iran just gives rhetorical support for the most part and some strategic support. But regardless, the Houthis control most of Yemen. They are the government in Yemen. And that's why they have ships now that they can use to try to intervene. Like what what the Yemenis are doing is humanitarian intervention as far as I'm concerned. In a genocide. Yeah, and it's also, they're not they're not trying to hurt anyone. They're just saying, you can't drive your boat full of billions of dollars worth of products by our country if these things are, the sale of these things is going to end up enabling a genocide to take place. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think that it's also coming from a, a people who have essentially suffered a genocidal campaign. Yes. I mean, the, the, the bombing campaign, of course, was horrific, but the starvation campaign was... I think really one of the big unacknowledged crimes, U.S. Saudi crimes of this era, it was devastating. I mean, I have a I have a friend who traveled with a humanitarian organization to Yemen, like right at the end of the war, I think. 
And, you know, he told me, you know, he would see children who were like nine or 10, but they looked like they were four. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like this, the development, the development of an entire generation of children completely stunted of, of those who survived. I mean, massive, the, the famine was just atrocious. And it was because of the U.S. like naval blockade, like the U.S. like actually having their ships be part of the naval blockade. Mm -hmm. You know, we did an episode uh, several months ago with a former sailor named Erica Gordon who un didn't really realize that that's what she was doing, but she was off the coast of Yemen. They would see ships come up, uh, like small boats filled with people who were starving to death. And they would send people onto the boat, search it for weapons, and then just be like, fuck off. Uh, wow. And so not only were they not helping these people who were coming on boats to the U.S. ships starving to death, but they were actually the reason that they were starving. And so for U.S. sailors in particular and those who are on the ships or maybe headed out to those waterways now, what the U.S. Navy in particular did to Yemen is there's probably a case for genocide there. The number yeah. of people who died and how it was so calculated to wipe out or, or kill a certain sector of the civilian population— and you know that when that was going on, I mean, that was so criminal that like Biden had to campaign on like stopping supporting it. Be like, you know, if I'm elected, we're not going to like support this anymore. But it's interesting you said that it was Mohammed bin Salman's decision to no longer do it. It wasn't any pressure from Biden or anything like that. And um, you know, we've done some reporting at Empire Files about how Biden broke that promise right away. But the the U.S. legacy, recent his very recent history with Yemen, is criminal. But now it's like it's it's different now, but in in a way that it could actually result in, I mean, there was some combat in, in that operation, right? Where the U.S. ships would get shot at, they'd shoot back and things like that when they were doing the naval blockade. Now it's becoming very direct. Mm -hmm. It's saying, we're going to fight your forces at sea and potentially on land if you do not stop doing the very justifiable and moral thing of not letting profits reach the country that is doing the genocide in support of that genocide. And so it's just so crazy yeah, it's, because it's like if you want the humanitarian intervention by Yemen to stop, if you want Hezbollah to stop firing at Israel, if you want Hamas to stop firing at Israel, if you want to stop being fired at in Iraq, stop the genocide in Gaza. It's as simple as that. Like that's, and the US can do it tomorrow, it can do it right now. All it takes is a phone call. The U.S. tells, I mean, technically, the U.S. has the ability to tell Israel what to do. And to, instead of doing that very simple thing, to instead go about this course of action where you risk a crazy escalation, you're just, like, killing people needlessly. Like, now there's, like, an Iranian ship in the Red Sea, and it's like, oh, now you want to go to head-to-head -to -head with Iran? Maybe, like, what is this in insanity? It's crazy. Yeah, and I think that for the for U.S. officials, it's like, it's this is the same thing is true with Iraq, where it's only by like the luck of U.S. officials that U.S. service members haven't been killed already. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's already been, you know, it's the fact that U.S. sailors on those ships haven't been killed yet. I mean, they've been shot at. They've had drones sent to them. They've had rockets sent to them. They've had people on the boat shooting at them. I mean, it's just really luck that that hasn't materialized into like U.S. service members dying. Yeah. And it's only a matter of time, the longer that this goes on, that something like that will happen. And they're willing to risk that. It's very easy for Biden and Blinken to be like, you know what? Maybe uh, there will be a successful strike on one of our ships in the Red Sea and a bunch of American service members are, members are killed. But you know what's more important than that is making sure that these shipping companies are able to deliver their products, uh, you know, to the, so the investors get their payouts and, and all of that stuff. Crazy. I mean, that's, what's, that's what really, like, if you, 
If you are one of those unfortunate sailors to be blown into the sea and have your body be eaten by fish as it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, you will Yikes. that you will meet that fate knowing that it was for nothing else than to protect profits for extremely rich people in service of a genocide that is completely unjustifiable and will go down in history as like one of the worst crimes against humanity of our lifetimes. And so I think that I think one of those important things is like if if you're a U.S. service member who is going to is ending up getting shot at by Yemeni forces because you're doing this, it's like they're doing the right they're, they're kind of doing the right thing here. I mean, yeah. you know, you're the one that's going you're in there the and and uh, being the aggressor and like launching this like we will come kill you if you try to stop ships from going through like who fucking cares? Like what? Like I have no interest me personally. Nobody in the Navy has any interest in a fucking shipping company being able to deliver its crates of like iPads. You don't want to die for who a cares? shipping company? My God, who <laughs> cares? Like stop the ships, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the most like, it's just like one of the more like, you know, you're dying for corporate profits type of situations. I mean, that's all, but it's like worse. It's you're not, you're dying for corporate profits in order to protect corporate profits so there's not pressure to end a genocide that's happening. Yeah. That, so it's like, it's very different because in the past it's like, yeah, you want to die for corporate profits in Iraq or whatever. Those those were very strong cases for those being real and rational arguments of what your life was being was being sacrificed for. Now it's like this double thing where it's like you're being sacrificed for corporate profits in it's, defense of a genocide. It's so bad. It's like it's come so the crazy. fuck on. Oh my god. When you put it like that. It's bad. And you know, and if, and, and there, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because like, I've watched a bunch of news coverage of what happened, that recent strike and, and what Yemen has been doing with these ships. None of it mentions why they're doing it. <laughs> I mean, I made it into the New York Times, which is the only report I read. Yeah. And I was like, I was too annoyed with like having, because you, you have to read through all this BS to actually see the news. It's like, yeah. everything's Iran this yeah. and Iran backed that. And it's like, I mean, just stop yeah. the genocide, you guys. And I mean, everything everything you said applies to Iraq in the sense of like, except Iraq's a little bit different because I think that U.S. personnel in Iraq are sort of like sitting ducks. So, okay, so let's pivoting to Iraq now because it's like a similar situation, right? Where you have, like you said, sitting ducks. There's been about 150 attacks on U.S. bases since October 7th. Around, they kind of stopped publishing the numbers, uh, <laughs> but around 100 U.S. troops have been injured. And the most recent attack was the first person who was like in critical condition. So we had three service members hit in an attack, one in critical condition. The entire purpose of these attacks is to add pressure to the White House to stop supporting the genocide. It's, you know, the, the attacks that are being launched at U.S. bases, it's not the full capabilities of the, the militias that are launching them. They could probably be killing U.S. service members if they wanted to, but they're just harassing, poking the U.S. in the eye and saying, and escalating over time, climbing an escalation ladder and saying, the longer you support this genocide, the longer there are going to be potential big consequences for you in a country where you already lost a war. Yeah. Um, so the U.S. has responded by launching airstrikes every so often. These airstrikes are condemned by the Iraqi government because the people they're striking are part of which is what I want, part of what I want you to explain, they're kind of part of the Iraqi government. They're within the network. And so the Iraqi government is like, look, U.S. bases, you're here to help us fight ISIS. That's the justification for why you are here. We are allowing you to have these bases because you're part of this anti-ISIS 
coalition. And that's a permission you have. You do not have permission to, on our own soil, launch airstrikes against people that are that we have an alliance with. And the Iraqi government, they're also very worried, and they've told the U.S. this, they're worried that this could erupt into like another war in Baghdad. It is putting an immense amount of pressure on Biden. Yeah. I mean, there's people in the State Department, they're saying, look, the longer we do this, we're risking things escalating in Iraq. So it's working. It's effective. It's it's we're going to shoot off a couple drones, we're going to shoot off a couple rockets and it's going to cause more drama inside Washington to be able to pressure Israel to stop doing a horrific horrific crime against innocent civilians. And so, you know, it's completely justified military strikes on the US bases in my opinion. It'd be a shame if people were killed because Biden decides that he's willing to sacrifice these American soldiers in order to do this really horrible crime, but that's where we're at. I think it's really important to just mention that we're recording this a day before the third anniversary of the U.S. murder of Qasem Soleimani, who obviously that was a very, very big deal, but he was murdered in a U.S. drone assassination strike at Baghdad airport alongside Abu Mahdi al-Mohandas, who was the leader, who was a commander in the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, specifically a commander in Qatayb Hezbollah which is one of And the, what is that? The Popular Mobilization Forces is like the coalition. Yeah, so after so the Popular Mobilization Forces initially came into being after ISIS took over large swaths of Iraq and there was a call for there was like kind of like a religious call from a couple figures. Um I won't go into specifics on that, but there was basically a call to like defend the homeland. Let's put it that way. So these at the time they're often referred to as Shia militias came together, many of them, to form the Popular Mobilization Forces, which ended up being consisting of a lot of other militias or units of other sects as well. They were majority Shia, but, you know, Iraq is majority Shia. Actually, I I embedded, when I went to Iraq on a reporting trip back in 2017, I believe it was, I embedded with the Yazidi wing of the Popular Mobilization Forces that was, like, fighting to get their sisters and mothers and, you know, Mm -hmm. the women who were taken as sex slaves back. But anyways, the Popular Mobilization Forces was is exactly what it sounds like. It was a popular mobilization against ISIS. And the U.S. was the U.S. was in a tough position when this came into being because it consisted of some groups that had fought the U.S. Mm-hmm. after the invasion and occupation of Iraq. One of them in particular is called Qatab Hezbollah. I just mentioned them because they are one of the more powerful groups. And the leader of that group was murdered by the U.S. three years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was a really, really big deal in Iraq. He was like a revered figure along with Qasem Soleimani and the Iraqis. So if we want to talk about something that we're seeing now, it kind of is reminiscent to me of the attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria following the murder of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. Mm-hmm. So anyways, right now what you have is, so the popular mobilization forces, just to fast forward a little bit, They played a huge role in defeating ISIS. The Americans like to credit themselves. And the Americans played a small role despite being responsible for the proliferation of ISIS. They ultimately did play a role in helping to defeat it. And then that's how they justified staying in Iraq. Uh, And that's how they continue to justify staying in Iraq, even though ISIS isn't really a problem right now. Mm -hmm. But the popular mobilization forces ultimately, even though the U.S. kept calling them Shia militias, Shia militias, Iran-backed Shia militias, they were really, really successful in routing out ISIS. And so ultimately, they were actually folded into the Iraqi security forces. And, you know, this makes them, like you mentioned, a part of the state. So right now, what we see happening is over well, over the past few years, because of various provocations, 
mostly during the Trump administration, um, you did have firing at bases. Like it happened a couple times during the Biden administration where they're like, get out of our country. But it's mostly been quiet in Iraq on this front. You haven't had much of a tit for tat between these various groups that some of whom are part of the popular mobilization forces and the Americans. However, this has been reignited by the war in Gaza. What we saw very quickly after the genocide in Gaza start was this kind of like umbrella group called, they call themselves the Islamic resistance of in Iraq. And I'm not sure exactly who's in this group. I don't think anybody really is, but there's various militias. I'm not even sure if all these militias are part of the PMF, but some of them are who have been firing at U.S. bases and taking credit for it, and they're doing it in the name of stopping the genocide in Gaza. They're explicitly saying it in their statements. That's what's behind this. And so they also operate a bit in Syria. Now, they actually exist in these places to fend off ISIS and also potential attacks from the Americans because the Americans are in both Iraq and Syria, and they see them as a belligerent party, um, especially in Syria. So that's where you've seen this tit for tat coming from. And I mentioned, again, I mentioned Qatab Hezbollah specifically. They've been responsible for some of the, some of these attacks, and they've actually absorbed the American response. The Americans have attacked these militias in response, and they've actually killed a. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure how many, but quite a few Qatab Hezbollah guys. And this group, the U.S. actually designates as a terrorist organization because for shooting at American soldiers who invaded Iraq. Post 2003. Post 2003, yeah. So like how dare you shoot at invading soldiers you're a terrorist and you must be sanctioned. Is essentially the way the US sees this group. They also see them as like a proxy of Iran because of course Iraqis have no agency whatsoever. And why on earth would they attack Americans? If they're Shia and they attack Americans, it can't possibly be because America invaded their country. It's because Iran told them to. No other there's no other logical reason for that. But I can assure you, these people are Iraqi. And, you know, there's a bit of a contradiction among some of them, too. I mean, I'm not going to try to speak for all of these people. But, you know, their base, a lot of their base isn't necessarily, like, even against the taking out of Saddam Hussein. Like, these are, like, mostly, you know, Saddam was not very nice to Shias, especially in his later days. Um, And a lot of them, you know, a lot of people who are in positions of power and various militias today. I mean, their families, they'll tell you, they'll be like, if, you know, if, if it wasn't for, if Saddam Hussein was still in charge, my family would be dead right now. So their issue was with the U.S. invading and occupying the country. And it is it is a bit of a contradiction. However, their issue has continued to be the U.S. invading and continuing to occupy their country, continuing to interfere in their country's politics, in their elections, in everything that takes place, all in its ongoing war with Iran. And also the U.S., they, they view, if you ask anybody, most people in Iraq will tell you the U.S. created ISIS. Like, that is the, that's how they view it. And, you know, I mean, is it that black and white? No. But you actually very much can blame U.S. policy for knowingly, in some instances, allowing the proliferation of ISIS. That did happen. So these groups have a lot of animosity towards the U.S. for those reasons, but again, I want to like say that the, there's there hasn't been a back and forth in a long time, mm-hmm. in maybe the last year or more, maybe since like you know since the beginning of the Biden administration, if I'm not mistaken. This is explicitly a result of what's taking place in Gaza. So again, if the U.S. wants it to stop, end the genocide in Gaza. It's really that simple. Yeah, but it's only a matter of time before one of these strikes actually kills someone. Because they're getting yeah. very close to killing someone. If you get orders to go to one of these bases in Iraq and Syria, it's under the auspices of you're going 
on this anti-ISIS operation, which sounds quite noble and heroic. But in reality, you're going to go be a sitting duck on a base who will end up being killed by someone who was anti-Saddam Hussein, (laughs) who led the fight to destroy ISIS, who is part of the state apparatus of the sovereign country of Iraq, like which the Iraqi government is saying, do not fight these people, do not bomb these people. And then the only purpose is, the only reason that you will die is because Joe Biden and Antony Blinken and Lloyd Austin refused to stop giving Israel all the fucking weapons to mass murder civilians with. And, you know, with Syria, too, like it's, uh, you know, we don't have to go too much into like what happened in Syria. But the point is, is that the American forces in Syria are there just to like basically protect an oil base to keep it out of the hands of the Syrian government. Like it's not to fight ISIS. It's not. The ISIS has been defeated in Syria and it's not because of that much that America did. What America did caused ISIS in Syria. The people who died fighting ISIS more than anybody else were the Syrian army and these various Iraqi groups and Hezbollah guys, like not the Americans. It's it's just so absurd. In fact, Qasem Soleimani, who the who Donald Trump murdered and almost started like a massive war with Iran over murdering, yeah. was the yeah. leader of the anti-ISIS fight and did way more yeah. to defeat ISIS than the U.S. did. And so it's literally like in, in, in Syria, the U.S. has split Syria in diff- different parts, basically, because it didn't succeed in taking out the government there. So now it has these starvation sanctions on Syria. And then a portion of Syria is under the control of like an American proxy force called the SDF, where American soldiers are stationed literally at an oil base to prevent the Syrian Syrian government from accessing its own oil so that they can starve them of oil. Like that's what you're in Syria for. That's it. To protect an oil base from Syria, from the government that should have access to it. It's like the most iconic. American imperialism photos. It's like the MRAPs <laughs> and like U.S. armored vehicles with giant, oil rigs. giant American flags on them at the oil derricks and like the where like, it's just pumping oil in the background. And it's like you got a guy on a 50 cal like guarding it. It's like I appreciate, I appreciate that those images exist because yeah. it's a great representation. It's very emblematic of you know what your real mission is. And so you know the White House is in this position where they obviously don't want to get into a big war in Iraq. They don't also don't want to leave Iraq because they want to desperately to maintain U.S. bases there and always have. Even when Obama withdrew them, they're still desperately trying to keep as many U.S. forces there as they could. So their calculation is, yes, American soldiers might die. We're not going to take them out. We're also not going to stop supporting the genocide. And so, you know what? And Mike, like, there's a couple things I want to add to what you just said. This is their region. Like, There's a difference between American soldiers being sent from some state in the U.S., like, and then the people who actually live there, who in many cases have nothing to lose. Like, when we talk about Yemen, like, this is a country that's been through, just finished coming out of a genocide itself. People don't have a lot to lose. It's kind of like the same in Gaza. It's like people in Gaza don't have, I mean, there's something to lose, of course, but they're living, like, what's been done to them has been so horrific, even before this current genocide that they have a lot less to lose than Israelis, right? Which is why, despite the fact that Israel has superior firepower, they just can't win. They don't want it as bad. It's not their land. And that applies to Americans. Like, if you're going to come over from a place on the other side of the world to someone else's land, someone else's sea, they're willing to lose the little that they have. You have a lot more to lose. 
It's just that actually like makes it not as fair of a fight in a way because like if you're yeah. going to go fight in Syria or Iraq, the people who live there are willing to sacrifice way more than you are for their land. You know what I mean? Like it's oh, why. Yeah. Like why? They have they have a lot less to lose than you do. And that that means they're willing to go further and they're willing to die. Like they are willing to die for this. You know what I'm saying? Because it's their people and it's their land. And that makes all the difference. It's not your people. It's not your land. And it's not for a good cause. Like as simple as that. Yeah. And you know what? And there's a recurring theme here. I mean, you have Lebanese people fighting Israel who they went through a U.S.-backed genocidal campaign by fascist militias that carried out many horrific civilian oh, yeah. massacres with the support of the United States. So, you know, potentially fighting people who went through that. You have Yemen, who very recently survived a genocidal starvation campaign where there is a legitimate case to bring genocide charges against the perpetrators of that. And then you have Iraqis. So you have Yemenis who are firing at U.S. forces after surviving a genocide to stop another genocide from happening. You have Iraqis who are shooting at U.S. forces to prevent a genocide from continuing, who themselves have endured a genocidal campaign. I mean, there was a, you know, people like former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark and others were trying to bring a case for genocide against the United States for the starvation campaign against Iraq prior to the invasion in 2003. Right. So throughout the 90s, you have Iraq suffering what, legal experts called a genocide against Iraqi children in particular. And then the U.S. invasion and occupation, there being a legitimate case for genocide there as well. I mean, the number of killed is astronomical. It's, it's much, much more than, than Gaza. I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And so you have all these different forces that are putting their lives on the line to stop a genocide that is happening in front of everyone's faces who themselves are survivors of genocidal mm -hmm. campaigns. And so yeah. it's, I mean, it's not hard to see who's on, who's the, like the good guys and the bad guys in these situations. Yeah. No, a hundred percent agreed. It's not hard to see who the good and bad guys are. And you don't want to be the bad guy. You don't want to be the Nazi. Like you just don't. You don't. You don't want to be the really Nazi. You <laughs> really don't. Um, but anyways, you know, just to kind of wrap this up, just some kind of big picture perspective, because all of the groups that we've discussed are called like Iran-backed proxies. You've, I think, kind of clearly explained how that's, these are all their own people. There's just an alliance. But I, I wanted you, so I don't want you to go into all that again, but just like, there's this axis of resistance, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, the Houthis in Yemen, Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, these different varied militias in, militias in Iraq and Syria. And they're an axis of resistance that are, Muslim. These are all Muslim militias. Because they're Muslims, they get, there's this automatic like, oh, well, these are just Muslim terrorists. And, you know, like, because that anti-Muslim and uh, bigotry is so strong in the United States. No, that's a really, really good point. I mean, yes, it's true. Whether we're talking about Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas in Gaza or the various militias in, in Iraq or the Houthis in Yemen or Iran itself. I mean, as Iran's an Islamic Republic. We are talking about people coming together in these different locations around an Islamic identity, which makes sense. I mean, it makes sense when you're dealing with invasion and occupation. In all of these cases, by the way, that's where, where these groups come from. They're a response to invasion, occupation, and war. And that includes the Islamic Republic of Iran. That was a revolution in 1979 against a U.S.-backed 
dictator that terrorized the country. So all of this is people basically forming resistance to imperialism around an identity that makes sense to them in their location. And in this case, a lot of Muslims are in these locations. In South Lebanon, it's predominantly Shia Muslim. There are Christian villages and some Sunni villages and some mixed villages, but the majority of the population is Shia Muslim. And also, you know, in a lot of these places, there was secular resistance that was just destroyed Mm -hmm. by the U.S. because a lot of that secular resistance happened to also be a communist. And that was like a Cold War era kind of thing. But -hmm. that's why you see a lot of this around Islamic identity. But You know, the U.S. wants to make this comparison to ISIS. Hamas is ISIS. Hezbollah is ISIS. All these groups are ISIS. And that's just BS. Like, it's not true. ISIS is a fanatical, fascistic, religious organization that wants to do genocide and impose itself anywhere. In some cases, I would compare it more to Israel, honestly. Whereas these are like all indigenous groups that are organizing around an identity, but actually have demonstrated their ability to exist with minority groups and also protect them in some ways. So I I just, it's not the same. And again, like, you know, ISIS is is a group that came into being because of the collapse of state in a lot of these places because of imperialism, but also was kind of like all about taking more power. It was also funded in large part by Gulf states and Gulf oligarchs and supported by policy from the U.S., whereas these movements don't have that sort of support. They're just aligned with each other around a similar cause, and their cause is that they don't want outsiders. They don't want imperialist countries. They don't want settlers coming and determining their lives and their futures and how they get to live. That is all. And if you if you don't like these organizations, and stop feeding what gives them fuel, which is American and Israeli invasion and occupation. Um, But ultimately, I think it's important to note that, like, this is not the Middle East of 2003. This is a region that has been completely destroyed over the last several decades by U.S. imperialism and by the aggression of its client states in the region. And throughout those moments of destruction, there weren't forces that could fight back. And now there are. In 2003, Iraq was on its own and it fell very quickly and nobody could do anything to stop it. Now you have forces of defense. These I would look at these as defense forces in Palestine, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Iran that are able to defend themselves and defend their borders and defend their sovereignty against outside aggression. And that is what the U.S. and Israel are contending with right now. And that's why they're so angry. That's why they're acting out so belligerently and so stupidly because they're not used to seeing a Middle East where people can defend themselves from this. And that's what we're seeing happening now. And I think this is gonna go down in history as a moment when for the first time, this region was able to like literally have armies to fight back against genocide, against genocide. This has never happened before. 1948 happened with almost no defense and people were ethnically, it was the worst, it literally means, Nakba means catastrophe because it was a catastrophe for Palestine and a catastrophe for the, for the region. And decades after that, it was one defeat after the next, after the next against Arab countries and forces. And today, that's not the case. Today, people are fighting back. And again, against the genocide. And it's the axis of resistance that, yes, Iran is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And these people are acting for their interests of their own people in their own countries, in their own border. So like, I really think that like next time you see Iran backed this, Iran backed that, they're just allied with the Iranians, but they're not like taking their orders from Iran. 
They're just defending their own people. That's what Hamas is doing. That's what Hezbollah is doing. That's what the Houthis are doing. And just don't be the person who gets in the way of that. It's not worth it. Yeah, I think the biggest indicator is that if you are in the Iranian military, your main thing that you train for is being invaded by the United States and fighting them on your homeland. And if you're in the American military, (laughs) you train for fighting Iran or other targets in their country right? as the invader. And you know what? It's not. And one thing I'll add is like, if you don't like the religious makeup of these groups, it's none of your, it's none of your business. Like, you know, like let these countries and people in them figure that out. That is like not up to the Americans. And it's not like the Americans are going and trying to impose some utopian vision for like what a society would look like, should look like. They could care less. Look at their allies. They're all a bunch of like kleptocratic dictators across the Gulf states that also impose a crazy religious fanaticism. So, you know, you're not doing anybody any favors by repeating that sort of rhetoric or even buying into it. Rania, thanks so much for joining us on Nice Left. It was very important insight and appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much, Mike. It was a pleasure. Nice Left.